Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker and folks on today's show. We are honored to have our interview with Virginia Postrel. How's it going, Ron? It's going great, Ed. I've been really looking forward to this. I've been following Virginia for decades. I love her work, love her writing, so this is really exciting. Yes, I'm really looking forward to this too. I, I became obsessed with this book. Well, let me before we get started, let's uh, do the, the 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 formalities here and welcome Virginia Prestrell, who is an award-winning journalist, an independent scholar, a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. She previously served as columnist for the Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, The New York Times, and Forbes. She is authored of highly acclaimed book, The Substance of Style, The Power of Glamour, The Future and Enemies, and the book we're going to talk about mostly today. The Fabric of Civilizations, How Textiles Made the World. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Virginia Prostrell. It's great to be with you. Well, I became obsessed with this book about Thanksgiving. And I'm going to tell you a story we we have at our, our at Thanksgiving. We were able to go over to my in-law's house despite COVID, which we're very excited about. And uh, we have a tradition in the family that everybody goes around and says something that they're thankful for which is very nice. Usually people say the, you know, family, all kinds of stuff like that. Well, I said fabrics <laughs> <laughs> and they got uproarious laughter from the dinner table. <laughs> but Virginia, I really want to know, I think we should be. Why should we be thankful for textiles? <laughs> we absolutely should be thankful for textiles. And I actually wrote a piece in Thanksgiving for Thanksgiving for USA Today about it, uh, which people can find on my website, uh, vpostrel.com. Textiles are everywhere. Um, Arthur C. Clarke had this famous Clarke's Third Law, which says that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. But it's also, the converse is also true, which is that any sufficiently familiar technology is indistinguishable from nature. That is, we tend to take it for granted. And cloth is definitely one of those technologies. Uh, Textiles are everywhere. Obviously, they're in our clothes. They're in our blankets and sheets and sofa cushions. Um, But they're also in things that we don't necessarily think about. Sneakers, for example, or backpacks, or tents, or parachutes, uh, or (laughs) uh, uh, curtains, uh, they're bandages, they're just everywhere. And that was even more true in the past than it is today. So for example, in the age of sail, textiles were absolutely critical to traveling long distances. so textiles are everywhere. They're a very old, one of humanity's oldest technologies, and a very advanced technology, and one that most of us have the luxury of never thinking about how much ingenuity and innovation uh, and just sheer brain power goes into every piece of cloth. 
And later in the book, you have one of my favorite quotes, which is, we suffer textile amnesia because we enjoy textile abundance. Exactly. <laughs> and, and that's very much, uh, I, I guess, one of the major themes of the book, which is to take that textile amnesia and cure it. Give us, <laughs> give us some idea of what went into getting us to this amazing textile abundance that we enjoy today. And, and along really the way, it becomes this history of science and technology and history of the world. And you learn a lot about a lot of things. <laughs> yes, yeah, we're definitely going to get into all that. It re really really starts with thread, doesn't it? That's kind of the, the, the basis for that. So talk a little bit about the origins of thread. Yeah, so thread is truly ancient. And in fact, between the time that I submitted my manuscript uh, in late 2018 and the time I revised it in early 2019, um, work was published, academic work, that found that Neanderthals had made string, which is distinguishable from thread, I'll explain that in a minute, 50,000 years ago. And by making string, I mean something more than just like ripping some things off of vines. Um, you have to take fibers, in this case plant fibers, and twist them together. And then in this case, they were also plied, which means you take two, two of those or more of those twisted strands and you then twist them together to make them stronger. If you think about a rope, uh, you can picture that. And this goes back 50,000 years. And it's one of the most important breakthroughs ever. Because once you have string, you can do all kinds of things. You can attach an arrowhead to a, an arrow shaft. You can make a fishing net. You can hang your food above the ground. You can make traps. You can make fishing lines. You can make carriers for your babies or other other for the food that you gather. All these kinds of things. So going back to literally cave dwellers, people made string. Now thread or yarn as it's sometimes called is slightly different, which is that it, it implies that you're actually not just using string, but you're making it into something. You're weaving textiles or you're, you're uh, weaving it, it comes out about maybe 10,000 years ago. So there's a big period in between. And, and one of the big factors is you have the development of agriculture. So you can get a lot of fiber uh, to make thread out of. And it's so, so interesting, like, you wonder what possessed somebody to say, if I, if I do this, I'm going to get this long piece of whatever, right? I mean, wh where do we even start with that? That's, yeah. that's the thing that amazes me. It is fascinating because all around the world, using very similar devices, people figured out how to make thread. And making thread means you got to take something that's short. Um, it could be as long as a shaft of flax in, inside the flax, flax uh, which would be maybe a couple of feet, uh, which would give you linen, uh, the made, which you would use to make linen thread. You've got to take that short thing and make it long and strong. And to do that means you have to twist a bunch of these short things together and you have to continually do that and then you know wrap it up somehow so that later you can do something with it and people all around the world figured out how to do this using something that's called a drop spindle which is a very simple device it's essentially a stick with a weight at one end uh, 
sort of not at the very end, but near the end. And the weight helps you maintain um, uh, angular momentum when you spin it essentially like a top and you use that to twist your thread and to collect your thread. And it is a very simple, very common and very laborious in the sense of time uh, process. Um, Up until the Industrial Revolution, most women around the world spent a lot of their time spinning thread, either for their personal use, household use, or in some cases for taxes, and in some cases for the marketplace. But, but you need a lot of thread to make anything. Uh, if you take and by thread, you know, I'm talking about what you're weaving from. I'm not talking about the sewing thread, which is a whole other thing. Um, so take the denim in a typical pair of blue jeans. To weave that much denim, which is just, you know, one pair of pants, requires six miles of thread. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the math gets big really fast. Um, And so six miles of thread uh, takes a long time to spin. I mean, if you're in the fastest pre-industrial revolution kind of spinning, which was with the Indian charka, which is... A step up from, I mean, it's it's significantly faster than the kind of drop spindle I was talking about. Uh, with that technology, uh, it would take a hundred hours to spin enough thread to weave uh, enough denim for a pair of jeans. So you can see why cloth would be scarce, why spinners would make very little money, despite the incredible importance of their work to the process, uh, because it took so long to make anything. Uh, in in the 18th century, it was not uncommon in England for weavers to be sitting around twiddling their thumbs, waiting for the supplies of yarn to come in, because even with 20 people spinning for every weaver, there was often a shortage. And, and that's the, it's unbelievable. One, at one point, you say a queen-size sheet, 37 miles worth of thread, yeah. um, stretching from, from the Washington Monument to Baltimore. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Just and, to try and, to- and by the way, that's not a luxury queen-size sheet. That's a, a 250-thread-count queen-size sheet, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, not that we all want nowadays, right? The- right, right, exactly. I mean, that's just kind of like you go to Walmart, buy a set of sheets. That's that kind of sheet. Okay. Although quickly, I want to just tell you this is I actually worked for a sheet producer at one time, right? That, or <laughs> I, I did the, the software installation. And one of the things that these guys told me, they said, always buy irregular. Oh, yeah. And the reason is, is there's actually no difference between irregular sheets and regular sheets, except every so often we put, we put like in 20% of them, we just say they're irregular and those never come back, but the other ones we guarantee, but there's no quality control. There's actually, oh, when, I, when I was a kid in South Carolina in the seventies, we uh, would go to various uh, mill outlets and and I remember one time we bought some irregular sheets, but they were genuinely irregular. They had like rips that had been sewn up <laughs> oh gosh yeah no this guy said that <laughs> i guess really they, cheap yeah yeah had, had, they had progress progress to the point where it was they still sold them but it was just a it was just a, a marketing tool at that point yeah, which i think is interesting. um so I, I have so many questions we only got about two minutes left in this segment but uh what's what's the relationship of textiles to mathematics 
Oh, uh, well, weaving and knitting, the two major ways to produce cloth, are both deeply fundamentally mathematic in the same way that music is. They're all about ratios and proportions. Weaving is the oldest binary technology, if you want to think of it that way. It's all about ones and zeros, up and down, on and off. Um, and it, mathematics has been called the the science of patterns and a lot of what people are doing when they're making cloth is reproducing patterns using symmetries using other kinds of uh, ratios to record and remember and reproduce patterns so yeah it is fundamentally mathematics and it goes back very it's probably influenced ancient greek math and all the way to the computer age Right, and the the really fundamental algorithms built, but in in the looms, that's the first algorithms you say were 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 those that were produced at the loom. Yes, yes, probably so. I mean, this this is we're going back in time a lot, but yes, there's this fundamental algorithm of of division by subtraction, where you take a big number and a little number, and you keep subtracting the little number from the big number until you either get zero or a remainder, and this is one way that weavers could figure out whether they had the right number of threads to create the patterns that they needed or whether they were going to come up short or have extras. Yeah, which is actually the same way I believe that computers ultimately do division. That's yes, that's, yes, that's 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 how it works out in, right. in, in the machine language. Yeah. Anyway, we're already done with our first segment. It's flying by. I want to remind our listeners that they can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. Where We will post full show notes of our interview with Virginia Prostrell. But right now, a word from our sponsor. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You. 
You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Virginia Postrel, one of my favorite authors. And Virginia, the, if you would have told me at any point that I would read a book about sewing and weaving and fabrics, I, I would have said you're nuts. But your book just held my interest the whole time. It's just a great, great story. And you're so right that we take this for granted. But if I would have told you that you'd read a book about innovation and science and technology and enterprise and business, you totally yeah. would have believed it. And that's Absolutely. what this book is about. It is. Also, you know, it's 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 it, through it's the a- lens of of this very important and often because we have so many of them forgotten technology and and huge business it's international business going back at least 4000 years in in long distance trade well the link between dyeing and chemicals was absolutely fascinating just by itself you're right this is a business book really in, yeah. in many dimensions yeah, it's not a, you know, it's not a how to succeed in business book, uh, although I always believe that reading this sort of thing can spark the minds of business people. Uh, yeah. But it's definitely a business history book. Uh, this is very much, as I say, I I have a chapter in the book called Traders, which is about the relationship between textiles and trade and the development of critical social technologies, everything from literacy to financial instruments because of the textile trade. And that starts with our earliest records of long distance trade, which are 4,000 years old and are these wonderful, wonderful cuneiform letters and also contracts and lawsuits uh, that record the trade between a city called Assur uh, and a city called Kanesh, which is in Anatolia. It's about 900 dis- miles distance. And people were bringing, tra- bringing textiles and they would, some people settled in Kanesh and they, they would be sort of expats and they would have agent, they would be agents of people back in the home city. So all the issues you have to deal with when you're dealing with what the economists call principal Asian problems are there. Um, there's the, the letter that I start with is this woman writing to her husband about what textiles she's sending him and also saying like, why do you complain about the textiles I send? Uh, you know, Sometimes you say they should have more, and sometimes they should say you should have less in terms of the content. And it's this great husband-wife thing, but it's also the classic business thing of the inside guy and the outside guy. Mm-hmm. And the inside guy says, why can't you sell what I make? And the outside guy says, why can't you make what I can sell? And meanwhile, <laughs> the, the customers keep changing their minds. <laughs> you know? so, so it's like these people who are so, so distant from us, totally unlike us in many, many dimensions are so like us in other dimensions, which is one of the great things about, you know, studying this kind of deep history. Yeah. Your, your discussion about how textiles were used for money and the, the sumptuary laws, of course, were absolutely fascinating too. I love the, the line about um, how husbands used as an excuse not to, you know, <laughs> buy a nice wardrobe for their wives. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and uh, yes, so sumptuary laws, as some of your listeners will know and some won't, uh, sumptuary laws are basically laws that tell you uh, in general or as a matter of your class 
what you can and cannot consume. Uh, and they're often focused on dress and textiles. And they're common in many different cultures around the world. I talk about several in my book. But one of the most interesting is the one that you brought up. Because usually these laws are basically about keeping people in their place and particularly keeping merchants and business people in their place subordinate to whoever, you know, aristocrats or uh, warriors or scholars in Confucius China. Uh, but in Renaissance Florence and Renaissance Italy in general, these cities were run by merchants. So they had no interest in keeping merchants in their place. They were the bosses. So why would they pl- pass sumptuary laws? And in, instead of being about class, it was basically a, an attempt to use the city's ordinances to, res- to control your household budget, to to control your impulse to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak, uh, and also your wives' and daughters' impulses to want the – which was very important, actually. It was not just about display. Clothes were a very – and jewelry were very important forms of female wealth. Like if they – Sure. They they got to keep their clothes even if the their husband died or there was something. Um, so uh, if dowries were largely clothes that belonged to the woman, if they were money that belonged to the husband, that sort of thing. So in in Renaissance Italian uh, cities, they passed these laws saying you couldn't have these very very expensive clothes. Uh, but they would always people would find ways around them as people do, and eventually in Florence in particular, they just essentially gave up, and they they turned what had started as fines into fees. If you want this kind of clothes, fine, but you have to pay x amount of money to the city for permission and this applied by the way not just to women but also to men because uh there was a a a charge for men who wanted to wear essentially mini skirts um that would show men's legs were until fairly late in the game late 18th century or so were very important as uh showing their virility and strength and you know Louis the 14th always showed his legs and his <laughs> portraits and stuff uh, so these mini skirts were you know very desirable as particularly among young men and uh, but they had to pay if they wanted to wear the, the, these very things above a certain amount uh, shorter than a certain amount yeah. that's awesome well you've convinced me that we should no longer call it the stone age it should be called the string age <laughs> the i think string you're absolutely age, yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah right yeah um, i mean you know, I talked. We talked earlier about the textile amnesia that comes from just the fact that we have so many textiles. So that, unlike say in the 19th century, we're not thinking about the textile industry very much, even though it is a big worldwide industry and uh, in terms of output and dollars flowing around, um, not as many people working in it as as there used to be. But there's another aspect too, especially when you're going back a long way, which is that textiles rot and other hard things don't. So there are only a few places in the world that we have textiles preserved. And they tend to be places that are very dry. The Middle East, there's some. Peru, there's some. I write in the book about the earliest uh, example of indigo dyeing, which is like the dye in your blue jeans, which goes back 6,200 years. And that was those 
fragments were found in Peru. Uh, there are a few places in Europe where there were bogs, where there was an anaerobic environment that preserved the cloth. But generally speaking, we think of this. We think of the past, especially the really prehistoric past, as if there was nothing soft in it. Because not much that was soft survived, not because they didn't have those things. And certainly it turns out that when you start looking very, very carefully, you can, in fact, as people have in recent years, find very, very ancient string and pretty ancient textiles as well. Hmm. You know, one of the most fascinating stories in the book, it just blew my mind. Ed and I have done a few shows on like the history of medicine and, you know, surgery and anesthesia and germ <laughs> theory. Yeah. Explain the link between silkworms dying, <clears throat> which led to germ theory. Yeah. So many people may know, or if they think back to sometime in their schooling, they may have heard about Louis Pasteur being, uh, who of course was very important in developing germ theory, uh, working on silkworms. But before him, uh, there was an Italian guy who was actually a lawyer by profession uh, named Augustino Bassi, who was fascinated by medicine and diseases and biology. And he worked for many, many years to try to figure out the origins of something which everybody assumed was some sort of toxin, environmental toxin that was killing silkworms. And basically what they would happen is they would they would get this they would get stiff, they would die, and then they would have this powdery covering. Um, and so it was called like calcio, like from calcium, because it, it looked like chalk or whatever. And it took him a really long time. He gave up at one point. It's quite a dramatic story. He, you know, he gave, spent all his money, lost much of his eyesight. Uh, but he finally figured out that what was going on was not uh, a poison, as people had thought, but rather was a germ, was, uh, in this case, a, a fungus. And uh, that if you looked at it very closely, you could see the, the little stems, if you will. And this was the very first application of germ theory to uh, a disease, particularly a dis an animal disease. <laughs> we, we forget sometimes that insects are animals. And when Pasteur came along, then he used Bassi's work to help him. And it was silkworms that first drew him into studying animals. Before that, he had been studying beer. Uh, so a lot of our... Um, important development of, of germ theory, of ideas of, uh, of keeping antiseptic environments, uh, you, disinfecting things, uh, just generally controlling disease came out of thinking about silkworms. Yeah. <clears throat> it, it makes sense because so many other things came out uh, about thinking about all of this, uh, dyeing and chemical and the, the polyester and nylon and all of that. Yeah, and, and silk, of course, because it was a luxury fa fabric, um, also there was more money there sometimes, so sometimes people w were investing there. But yes, um, the, uh, the, the, orig the origins of uh, our plastics and all of, all of that sort of polymer uh, synthetics uh, come first from development of nylon. Uh, what happened was there was a, well, th there, there, 
DuPont wanted to start a basic research lab, and they headhunted a guy from Harvard named uh, Wallace Carruthers and said, you can study anything you want. And he was interested in this problem of what was a polymer because uh, they didn't really have that name, but, but these giant molecules that had these very big molecular weights. And people thought at the time, most scientists thought that they were just agglomerations of smaller molecules. Uh, but Carruthers uh, thought it might be one thing. So he started working on the basic science and he eventually cracked the code and figured out, yes, these were polymers and they could be of infinite size. It was one molecule, it was a new kind of structure. And then came the depression and DuPont stopped saying, you can study whatever you want. It started to say, you know, we need to get some products out Product of this. Up there. <laughs> and his boss said, hey, why don't you look at... Uh, go back and look at this particular type of polymer that he had been studying because wool is like that. And eventually he came up with nylon as a result of that. And that was the first synthetic fiber and gave rise to the synthetics that followed and also to the plastics that followed. Right. And Carruthers' right. story is a very dramatic story. Yeah, no, I, that was that was incredible. So unfortunately, we're at our break. This is just flying by, Virginia. This is great. But folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, Send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Check us out at patreon.com slash tsoe, which is now hosted by 90 Minds. Find a mind at 90 Minds. That's 90minds.com. And now a word from our sponsors. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. 
We are back on the Soul of Enterprise with, with Virginia Postrel. The book is The Fabric of Civilization, How Textiles Made the World. And folks, I can't recommend this book enough. Please go get it and, and read it. It's a great story. And we're only scratching the surface with Virginia today on what's, what's in, in this book. But um, Virginia, I want, wanted to ask you a little bit about um, your process of writing this book, um, because it, it is so deep and so rich. Uh, did, is, was it like a term paper, like note cards? I mean, I could... I have this vision of you having note cards all over your dining room table to try to put this together. Well, you know, here in the 21st century, we don't use note cards so much. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, okay, so first, the first big challenge actually took place before I wrote the book, when I wrote the book proposal, which is that I wanted to write a big book, or I wanted to write a normal-sized book, but big in its ambition, uh, to, I wanted to cover from prehistory to the near future because I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, things that are on the horizon and work that people are doing now. And I wanted to cover the entire world. And I also wanted to hit certain themes. And so the organizational structure of the book was really tricky. And I came up with the idea of having a structure that's kind of like a woven structure. That is, each chapter has a warp and a weft. So each chapter, the t title tells you what it's about. It's a stage in the process. So we go from fiber to thread to cloth to dye, traders, consumers, and then I end with something called innovators, which starts with the story of nylon and then moves to some of the research that's being done today. But then... Even that would be too much because there's a ton you could write about fiber. There's a ton you could – so how do I limit it? Each chapter has a theme. So the first chapter is about how there's not really no such thing as a natural fiber uh, and how humans change nature. Uh, as Ron mentioned, the, the chapter about dyes is really about the history of chemistry, and it's about both the power and the limits of trial and error learning without – fundamental understanding so so each chapter has a theme that restricts me I can't put everything I know about dye into that chapter uh, I can't put everything I know about cloth into that chapter it's just got to have some relation to mathematics and code uh, so that was the first step which mostly took place before I even started writing the book and then in each chapter uh, it's it's a combination of reading broadly and going to conferences and going visiting sites um, and then once I sit down to write um, I inevitably discover things oh I need to know about that I need to know about that um, so yeah I have a lot of files I have a lot of books <laughs> I have a lot of air miles uh, <laughs> I did travel quite broadly for this um, I know from uh, some of the work I did, particularly on my second book, The Substance of Style, that one of the great ways to get up to the frontier in a new area is to go to conferences where people who work in that field talk to each other. Uh, so I did a lot of that, and those ranged from you know, academic conferences on textile archaeology to some great conferences at the China National Silk Museum about loom, different kinds of looms around the world and another one about the Silk Road um, to, you know, all different kinds of things. So, yeah, it was quite 
I, mean, I loved it because it is a great, it was a great education. It was a great experience. Uh, it was, a, I got to talk to and meet lots of very interesting people. Do you, and, and you use just word processor, Microsoft Word, type it out and then edit from there? Is that? Yeah, I use, yeah, I use, um, I actually have a Mac and I use pages, although okay. I have to s turn everything to Word to submit it. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so I write each chapter in, individually. So when I submit, it's a folder with a bunch of chapters uh, as opposed to one, and then somebody at the publisher turns it into one continuous manuscript that can be copy edited and such. Um, yeah, but I, I keep a lot of PDFs um, and I keep, you know, I make, when I read a book, say on Kindle, like there was a book on sumptuary laws, I'm able to take notes from that and then throw them into a file. But yeah, I don't have it. I don't use any fancy special note-taking software. I just use a word processor. Yeah. All right. Cool. Cool. Well, it's, it, again, just a fantastic book. And I love the fact that you include links to those YouTube videos because in many cases, it, it really is great. I must have watched half a dozen videos that you recommended in your book because you want to see, yeah. okay, this drop spindle thing that you're talking about. You really got to see that to right. fully appreciate it. And, and, and by the way, one thing I did uh, because the, 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 um, the notes are not indexed and there's just notes, not a bibliography. So if you want to find something by a particular author, you're going to have trouble. So I made a, a there's an online uh, reference page, which is mentioned at the top of the notes in the book. And that also has live links to things that are online, um, including YouTube videos and stuff. So people can peruse that or they can just type them in <laughs> <laughs> no well they're, they're they're just fantastic well i've uh, got about five minutes left i want to ask you a very specific question and that is did you come across a song called the work of the weavers that in in your travels i did um somebody told me about it fairly early on i think i put something on my facebook page where i was just querying people about Poetry or metaphor, I think it was about poetry that mentioned textiles, right. and somebody posted uh, the lyrics to that song. I actually don't know the tune. Yeah, the the, uh, the the Clancy Brothers did a version of it. It's actually a Scots tune. I'm going to give yeah. you a little bit of it, a sample okay. of it right now. Are you ready? Yep. Uh, and I, I like this the way that it's tied to the business. Is the weaving is a trade that never can fail. As long as we need clothes for to keep another hail. So let us all be merry or a bicker of good ale. And we'll drink to the health of the weavers. If it wasn't for the weavers, what would you do? You wouldn't have a cloth that's made of wool. You wouldn't have a coat of the black or the blue if it wasn't for the work of the weavers. And of course, the weavers <laughs> got themselves in a pinch <laughs> because tell that story of the yeah, weavers. So the weavers oh, depend on the spinners. <laughs> so I, I, I believe that song, I'm couldn't swear to this, but I think that song dates back to what one historian called the golden heyday of the Weavers, right. which was after the mechanization <laughs> of spinning, when they had all the yarn they needed, but before power <laughs> looms. So we all, uh, what, people know the term Luddite, and nowadays it comes, it's usually used as somebody who almost has a, 
a cultural or ideological opposition to technology or technological innovation. But it started with a much more self-interested sense. It wasn't ideological. It was just weavers who didn't like losing their jobs to power looms. <laughs> right. They were perfectly happy to have the spinners lose their jobs to spinning loops. I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit. But there was, sure. op- there was similar opposition to the spinning machines. Uh, but it didn't come from weavers. It came from spinners and carters and people like that. Um, but the weavers were doing great. Once there was plenty of yarn, but before they had, uh, before their process was mechanized. Uh, and so they engaged in riots against <laughs> the new machines. They smashed them. And, and, so, and these were the Luddite riots. And they, try, and they tried to get Parliament to block the new machines and things like that. And they were unsuccessful. And, uh, the, and, and some of them were actually executed. And a lot of them were sent to Australia, actually. Uh, they were some of the uh, convicts. And I actually, in the course of my research, I, I met a woman who works in at the frontier of textiles now works on wearables and things like that. And she is descended, or I think it must be like an uncle or whatever, not direct descendant, but one of her ancestors was one of those people who was sent to Australia for, for being part of that uh, technology resisting loom smashing process. Uh, <laughs> Weren't the, and uh, maybe this might be apocryphal, but the saboteurs, wasn't that a, a similar story? The sabot with the, with the shoes yeah, and stuff? Yeah, so I, I, I believe that is true. I don't know the whole story of that. The, the relationship between weaving and labor movements is very complex in France because weavers were often the uh, the leaders of that because they were kind of labor aristocrats. They they made they were they were first first of all probably smarter. I hate to say it, but that was probably true because weaving is not exactly an easy thing to do. Um, and they were kind of leaders in various labor movements. And and in France, when people have heard about Jacquard and his punch cards, usually in the context of the history of computing, and that automated a lot of weaving in France. And at first, there was opposition to it. And he had to leave Lyon, even though Napoleon honored him and stuff, uh, because people were so opposed. But then they turned around and they realized, hey, this can let us get reclaim. They had been the silk weaving and weaving capital of Europe before the French Revolution. But then when the French Revolution came, they kind of lost that place. And they realized, oh, Jacquard's invention actually can help us reclaim that. So then they they adopted it and they became very strong uh, force in, in the labor movement there. And I'm not sure where the saboteurs come up. Sorry, I should. Yeah, no, I think I think Don Boudreau, but Don Boudreau has something something on it. That's why I remember reading it. But the last question I have for you is your your afterward, which is really an essay that can stand on its own. Uh, It's just such a, a great piece. Um, I'm curious, was there a rationale for putting it as an afterward versus a forward? Because you could almost argue that it would set you up for the whole thing. So I just just curious about that. Well, I you're not the first person to say that, but I think it works better once you've been on the textile okay. journey with me. And <laughs> I thought of it last and I needed to write something that really wrapped up the book and I thought it that did a good job. 
Yes, it does. It's a magnificent piece. But as I said, it's almost can stand on its own as a as a as a tease for the book because it really leaves you with all of these dangling questions. But I uh, really appreciate it. Well, Virginia, thanks so much for appearing. Ron's going to take you the rest of the way home the last 15 minutes. But I just want to thank you for coming on the show today. This is just a great an honor for me. And as I said, I was obsessed with the book. So just a, a <laughs> lot of fun to talk to you. Great. But thanks right now we have to pay the bills and a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise well, welcome back everybody we're here with virginia Postrel and virginia another book of yours that i absolutely love the substance of style which came out in 2003 and in there, you talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And everybody talks about this like it's gospel and the oracle of truth, but you don't think it's a good explanation. Can yeah. you kind of unpack that? Yeah. Well, first of all, let me say that the way it's usually presented is actually not what Abraham Maslow wrote. That pyramid True. that everybody's seen in a million PowerPoints uh, where you start with your survival needs and then eventually when you have $40,000 a year income or something, you get to think about higher things. And and that's sort of the takeaway that a lot of people uh use and that's wrong I mean it's wrong historically uh, I talked in an earlier segment in 6200 6, years ago people were making cloth with indigo dyed stripes I mean that is not a survival need and yet clearly 6200 years ago people were incredibly poor uh, so what I argue is that it's better to think about it more like an economist that is what marginal gains and marginal costs. So often it's the case that in poor places, the marginal gain to making 
something beautiful is greater you know you're not going to get a refrigerator so you might as well makes make some beautiful cloth or something like that it's what's sure. available and and our understanding of of the hierarchy of needs as i say it's it's not quite what maslow actually wrote um it's very much shaped by the fact that in mid 20th century america uh it was an era where it was very it was very easy and, and relatively inexpensive to provide a lot of of goods and uh that's what the emphasis was on and people were not emphasizing in say 1950 uh the benefits of less tangible things as much uh because you know, we had had less tangible things. Now let's get some tangible things. <laughs> you know? right, um, right. So it's 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 really more about sort of what have you done for me lately? Uh, there's that that there's that thought. Well, yeah, it's like you say. You know, you don't have to wait to have a full stomach, or you know, your roof doesn't leak. I mean, the poor built cathedrals and made right. great it, pottery and jewelry it, and you know exactly. all of that. It's, it, yeah, it, it's a really really excellent point. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you, another book that I absolutely loved, and, and because, well, one thing, you signed it for me, it's behind me, <laughs> uh, The Future and Its Enemies, and we're going to link to all of your books and right. more on our show notes, but you write in the introduction to that book, the central question of our time is what to do about the future, and that question creates a deep divide. Is that still true? Yeah, I think it's very true. Um, you know, there was a period after 9-11 where at least on the political front i think other issues were became more prominent but certainly a lot of the tensions that we see today are about whether we're going to allow people to explore to innovate to do it from the bottom up without necessarily having a central plan um and, or whether we're going to have some kind of top-down uh, direction. And that takes different forms. And also what I call in the book reactionaries, that is people who really emphasize going back to the past as opposed to merely controlling the future, uh, have had a resurgence, uh, not just in the United States, but all around the world. The idea that what we we should have is some return to what is always an idealized past. It's not you know we want the 1950s but with the cancer drugs and the internet that we have today and wi-fi and and uh you know vaccine vaccines that can be produced in a matter of months uh, all of these sorts of things yeah yeah no that's really true it was very it reminded me very much that uh, kind of whole theme of the book was uh, jane jacobs yeah. Right. Wrote a lot about that bottom up yeah. trial and error. Uh, Hayek, obviously, George Gilder is another one who I thought of a lot. Um, but yeah, it's a fantastic book. Uh, the other thing I like that you pointed out is Al Gore wrote Earth in the Balance, but <clears throat> Earth doesn't have an equilibrium. There's no static standard for natural. Right. Yes. So one of the things I was taught in school, and I don't know if they still teach it because I'm old, <laughs> just turned 61, <laughs> uh, but was the idea of that each ecosystem, if left to its own devices, reaches a, a, a climax stage where it stays the same. 
And that is scientifically untrue. Uh, it was a misunderstanding of how nature works and that in fact nature is quite dynamic and also a lot of the so-called natural or wilderness ecosystems as they existed in the United States prior to European settlement were heavily influenced by the people who were already living here. Uh, They were setting fires deliberately. They were doing other things. So this distinction, uh, this idea that nature is a static thing, ideally, is just wrong. And we as human beings are part of nature, we influence nature, we shape nature, and a lot of our discussions are about how, how we should do that. Uh, and, and one thing that has been maybe unrealistic but sort of heartening in some ways has been the emphasis on finding you know, technologies and alternative ways of producing the things that human beings need and want as a response to that environmental challenges, including global warming. So uh, some of that is unrealistic and overhyped, and un- but still, the I, I appreciate the impulse behind it, which is much better than saying the alternative is we should all go back to you know, living like 14th in century the peasants age. or something, or in the string <laughs> age, yeah, right, exactly. Uh, you you wrote very eloquently articles in the Atlantic and on your blog about donating a kidney to an acquaintance. I think back in 2006. Is that yeah, it was in 2006. Yeah. yeah, and and I'm of course I'm interested in your ideas about the waiting list and you know how many people die waiting for a kidney and what a tragedy that is. But just that whole process, you talk about the process is really difficult for the donor. Yeah. So after you've given a kidney, everybody is like, oh, you're so great. You're such a hero. <laughs> Wonderful. It's so much you have such a good deed. Before you give a kidney, it's like, are you crazy? That's nuts. Don't do that. You know, you can back out. You know, it's like, um, yeah, your doctor told you, know, you that. Yeah, my doctor told me that. And I think she actually probably felt medically obligated, like ethically obligated to say it. But it's like, I'm not stupid. I know I can back out. Uh, but I also, know, I also knew that once I said I was going to do it, I was going to do it unless there was a genuinely medical reason I couldn't uh, because one of the worst things that happens to people who are waiting for organ transplants is false hope, uh, sometimes from their friends who then back out. Uh, And the truth is that for a healthy person, and I was quite healthy at the time, I was 46, and I didn't have children, I didn't have people, I had a job that was flexible, you know, it's it's different. Uh, It is the world's easiest good deed, once you get past the people trying to talk you out part. Uh, You you go, you get anesthesia. There's a risk, but the risk is at the level of having a baby uh, well the risk is at the level of a black woman in america having a baby Baby. which is a higher risk for having a baby than there should be but it's not like a huge risk or having a baby after you're 35 it's that level of risk it's a level of risk that people take all the time for big benefits and you you show up you get anesthesia, <laughs> you don't feel a thing. It's There's laparoscopic, a, right? It's laparoscopic. Mm-hmm. So I have a scar that's 
maybe an inch and a half long. It's not, it's not very big. This is not the days when they have to crack open your chest and, you know, right. break. It's not that kind of thing. And, and now there are even smaller ones. The Cleveland Clinic has a laparoscopic procedure where they go through your navel and you have no oh. scar that's visible at all. Um, so, and, and the recovery is fine. And I have, I have had no problems since then from having one kidney. Uh, it takes over. Uh, I it had grows can- bigger. It grows it bigger, grows bigger exactly. Yeah. It grows bigger to take up the slack. Uh, the only risk is if you were to have some sort of trauma. You know, if you were in a car accident, your one kidney got damaged, you would have a problem. But in terms of kidney failure, they tend to fail together. So having right, a spare right. is not helpful. Um, sure. and, and We've so, only got a half minute. Yeah, I so just, I, I would recommend anybody who would be qualified, give somebody a kidney. <laughs> I take it you support a market for kidneys. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it would work the way people picture. Uh, I think it would be with hospitals and insurance companies as intermediaries. Sure, uh, sure. But uh, yes, I think that people should be able to qualify as donors and and be. I think I think Iran's the only country that allows that legally. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Well, Virginia, thank you so much. This has been such an honor to be able to talk with you. I'm really excited um, and love your books. And we'll put up full show notes, where to contact you and all this other stuff that we talked about. Ed, what do we have on store for next week? Next week, Ron, we're going to be talking about our best books of 2020. And you may hear about this one again. <laughs> Excellent. I'll see you in 167 hours. All right. Stay with us, Virginia, until we This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern. That's 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, please visit us at our website, www.thesoulofenterprise.com.